Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we begin to dive into the book of Colossians. And here, the guys will be talking about an overview of the book, as well as issues surrounding Paul, dating, location, and the circumstance of the writing. Do please check out those links in the show notes, specifically the link to our YouTube channel where we are releasing weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture. And right now we are in the midst of a series doing a bit of a biblical theology of music with Peter Lightheart. Also be sure to check out those upcoming events. We have an intensive course and a regional course coming up in the month of March, both of which will be here in Birmingham. We also have a regional course on creation coming up in the month of April in Chicago, Illinois. And we will soon be announcing a second Theopolis workshop for the year. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the book of Colossians. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. We're in the middle of or beginning a series on the letter of Paul to the Colossians. We've looked at some general concerns about Paul's theology. We did a podcast episode on uh, recent developments in Pauline studies. And uh, we also did an episode on epistles as a form of communication and the reason why Paul communicates with the churches through letters, what that means for the kind of communication that he's, uh, that he's making and for the way we interpret the, the books. So we're going to plunge into the book of Colossians today. And then uh, once we finish Colossians, we're heading toward the letter of James, which we're all very excited about because Jeff has uh, recently finished a commentary on that book. And so we'll be going through that book later this year and uh, decided to do a Pauline epistle as a lead up. I should mention too, that Brian Modes as usual is in the background, making sure that things get recorded. Today, we're just going to kind of introduce the letter to the Colossians in general. And I I want to start out by just giving a, a brief overview of what's in the letter. Largely, this is drawn from N.T. Wright's older commentary on Colossians and Philemon, published, I think, back sometime in the 90s, but uh, still very much a, a touchstone for a study of Colossians, the thing that we've, uh, some of us have found particularly helpful for understanding the book. And according to Wright, there's a, the order goes something like this. There's an opening Thanksgiving. After the greetings of the first couple of verses, there's an opening Thanksgiving, beginning in verse 3, which then leads into a a summary of Paul's prayers for the Colossian church begins in verse 9 of chapter 1. And it's a lengthy record of the prayers that he asks and a complicated reflection of uh, what he's praying for for the Colossians. And according to Wright, we begin really the central substance of the letter in 124. The purpose statement that overlaps into the early part of chapter 2. Uh, Paul is describing what he's doing for the Colossians. He's suffering for their sake. He's filling up uh, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, we'll, we'll deal with that. But after he's presented that teaching concerning Christ and teaching concerning his, his work in Christ, he urges them to uh, live according to what they've received in Christ. So 2.6 is a kind of turning point. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then there are exhortations about how the Colossians are supposed to walk in the faith and in, in the Messiah that they already that they already exist in, they're in Christ, that uh, Paul says that right at the beginning of the letter, they're in Colossae, but they're also in Christ. 
But now, what, what do they do to walk in Christ and, and to maintain that walk in Christ? And Paul examines some of the threats. Uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about this today. Some of the threats to faithful walking in Christ. There are uh, philosophies that tempt them away from Christ. There are Jewish customs that they're tempted to adopt. And so they have to resist those temptations as part of walking in Christ. They have to die in Christ, die to their sin, die to their old way of life. That's uh, the theme of the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Uh, and then they live in a live a life of dying and rising in Christ, which occupies most of chapter three. And at the end, Paul, as he does in other letters, is uh, applying, explaining how these how this dying and rising in Christ and how this walk in Christ works out in specific uh, social uh, relationships and institutions, how it works out in the home and in the world and the family with relations uh, among uh, husbands and wives, relations of slaves and masters, relations of children and parents. Uh, and that's all uh, brought out at the end of chapter three and into the beginning of chapter four. And then as often, Paul ends with a series of greetings from the people who are with him in Colossae. So that's a pretty straightforward linear kind of analysis of what is in the book. There have been chiastic analyses of Colossians uh, that put the center somewhere uh, in the vicinity of the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, uh, which is again, having to do with our death in Christ our death to the old man, death to an old way of life, uh, death to the elementary principles of the world, and then life in Christ with our hearts set on things above, not on earthly things. Our hearts are set on things above because that's where Christ is. Uh, we've died, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God in Colossians 3.3. 3. And then uh, that's, that's the center point in at least certain chiastic analyses. That's the center point. Uh, it's that dying and rising in Christ and that devotion and that orientation toward Christ who is exalted in heaven that gives purpose and uh, shape to the Christian life. We could uh, discuss a little bit about the, the setting of the people that he's writing to. He's writing to a church in the town of Colossae, uh, which is uh, apparently not a large town in its time. There are, other, there are other cities surrounding Colossae that were larger and more significant by the time Paul is writing. Uh, but this has a church that Paul has not, in fact, visited. This is not one of the churches that he planted. Uh, he mentions Epaphras in verse 7 of chapter 1 as the one who started the church acting on Paul's behalf. And Paul is writing this letter of encouragement to a church that he hasn't been to. I mean, he's been, it's, there's a, Epaphras has kind of played a mediating role. He's acted on Paul's behalf. He's acted with apostolic authority because he's acting on Paul's behalf. But Paul himself hasn't been present in the church, which you know, that's, that's not an unusual situation for Paul. Romans, of course, is written to a church that Paul has not yet visited, that he hopes to visit in the future. And he's uh, exercising kind of apostolic guidance for churches, even the, even the ones that he didn't himself plan. Peter, I think that's a really helpful summary just of the contents of the letter. And um, it makes a lot of sense to me. But at the same time, I wanted to point out that reading through the letter it's it struck me that some of these um segues and transitions are sometimes sort of fair, a fair bit smoother than um the impression is given so you know it said for instance that paul um uh, starts talking and giving this portrait of christ in verse 15 of chapter one how he's the image of the invisible god and and so on um which he does but the, the whole thing sort of 
begins with a, a relative pronoun. It, it's just sort of continuing the previous um, sentence, you know, who is the image of the invisible God? And and some of the other um, transitions, you know, chapter three seems to start out something uh, quite different if then you've been uh, raised with Christ. But it, it's linking back to chapter 20, of the uh, verse 20 of the previous chapter, um, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the, of the world and, and the thing just has a real um smoothness to my mind um at the same time as going through these different sections now that's a really good point it doesn't it doesn't read like uh first corinthians for example where paul uh gives uh headings and titles to the different topics that he's going to talk about and so yeah trying to discern the transition that's i think that's a really good point but one will one will want to pay attention to as we go through that uh, it, yeah, seamlessness or smoothness does seem to capture the way that it's the way that it's written. I mean, others have pointed this out too. It's often uh, somewhat more relaxed uh, than some of his other epistles. So Galatians is definitely not a relaxing read. This it probably indicates that this is a letter written more about warning against what might come into their community rather than. Uh, specific and identifiable false teachers in their midst. So he's he's writing to warn them and to give them some ammunition uh, when inevitably he knows that the uh, party of the circumcision will come in and argue for uh, their maturity being coming into Judea or coming either coming into Judaism if they're Gentiles or back into a more fully observant Judaism. Um, but it does seem, it does seem just like James says, that this is uh, really uh, well, nicely composed. Uh, and like Ephesians, it's very similar to Ephesians in the feel of the letter. The connection with Ephesians, I think, is quite a strong one when you look at specific passages, particularly towards the end of the letter. It seems that particularly the advice for households and even certain of the shifts are pretty much exactly the same or of very similar types to those that we'll find in Ephesians. So presumably they were written at the same time, um, tackling certain of the same themes. So for instance, in chapter 3, verse 15 and following, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then straight after that, it's wives and husbands. And you have the same sort of ordering of the material in um, Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then wives submit to your husbands. That's just one of several examples where it seems that Paul is following a very similar template for this letter as he does in Ephesians. I want to go back to uh, Jeff's point about the, the calmness of the letter. Paul's not agitated as he is with the Galatians or the Corinthians. And that raises the, the big question about the false teachers that Paul refers to. 
and the kinds of false teaching that he rebuts and uh, and uh, warns against in chapter two. I mean, there, there are a variety of different readings of what's going on in Colossians. A lot of commentators would say that Paul is actually dealing with false teachers and that what he's dealing with is a, at least in part, a kind of early form of Gnosticism and uh, that, that he's uh, refuting the, the worship of these mediating beings that would be part of Gnosticism. He's uh, addressing the question of asceticism, which is despising the physical, the physical body would be part of the Gnostic outlook and Gnostic practice. So there, there's some that would say that there are actual false teachers that are causing havoc in Colossae and Paul's addressing those and then try to specify that specifically that kind of teaching. But I think Jeff's, uh, your comment, Jeff, suggests that just the tone of the letter suggests something that's less, less of an imminent danger, something more, as you said, like a warning than a crisis that Paul's intervening into. I think that's interesting, thinking about exactly what Paul's responding to. It does feel to me that Colossians, the believers there, have specific issues and specific errors, which don't seem, as far as I can tell, to be shared by the church at Ephesus. And yet, as Alistair points out, you know, the similarities between this and the Ephesian letter are very evident. They're, they're clearly there. And the fact then that Paul says very similar things to both is is kind of worth noting. You know, there's a lot of fundamental Christian teaching that deals with so many issues. And it feels to me that very often churches get into the mindset of thinking, you know, th- there needs to be a Christian response to this issue, to that issue, to COVID, whatever it is. And so often, I think these things don't really need those kind of specific, uh, tailored issues. They just need kind of fundamental truths to be um, rein- reinforced. And they, they all really have a, a, a very similar solution, which is just to go sort of deeper into the Christian uh, faith and, and to think more closely about union with Christ and, and so on. And that idea of there being a, a generic solution, um, I think, comes out quite clearly in Colossians. In addition to that, I think we see in Colossians that already Paul has this idea that it's not going to be just for the Colossians, it's for other churches. He wants them to pass it on to the Laodiceans. There is this expectation that the text won't just remain with a single church. And that by itself, I think, pushes against some of the approaches to these texts that would over-occasionalise them, that would treat them merely as rooted in their very specific context the very peculiar issues in that specific church or city and recognises that these are a deposit of truth for the whole church and that what the Corinthians or the Colossians or the Ephesians could gain from their letters could also be gained by churches in other parts of the world. We have the same themes in Colossians that we have in almost every Pauline letter. It always has to do with the Jew and Gentile situation. It always has to do with the temptation to go back into Judaism because it's it's uh, maybe easier or more or more glorious to at least to those who are arguing for it. Um, and so Paul is always having to pull them back into their understanding of union with Christ, His death and resurrection, uh, the gospel being the transformation of the old world into the new. Uh, and that's where the power is. That's where the glory is. That's where that's where the community will 
will mature and grow and, and, and um, have a fullness that they won't have if they go back. So uh, right there in the center of the book in end of chapter two, you have all the, all the common themes about um, Sabbath and circumcision and food uh, and even angelic worship. Uh, and, you know, the, the angels oversaw the old world and first century Jews were virtually angel worshipers. Uh, so Paul has to deal with that just like he does, assuming he's the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews one as well. So all of these, all of these common themes about movement, about the are being transferred from the domain of darkness, which is not just paganism. It's also in some sense, the old world, because even if the old world was glorious and light giving in some sense, you know, you look at Second Corinthians three through five, and you recognize, yeah, Moses had a glory; his face was shining, but it's nothing compared to the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is this this common themes in Paul just keep coming out, uh, and in this in this book in particularly in particular, I think you have, well, I you know, I'm not going to say a more systematic understanding of it, but something that is uh, more easily applied to all sorts of different churches in Asia and in the Mediterranean um, in ways maybe that other epistles aren't like Galatians. I think that's an important, important point. That's one of the things that Wright uh, emphasizes is the, the conflict is over Judaizing and the conflict with the Jews. And as you, you point out all the elements in chapter two that indicate that, the fundamental argument is the fundamental argument of Hebrews, which is that uh, we have everything in Christ that Jews had in their Old Testament system. You have circumcision. You have share in a sacrifice. You have share in a, a meal that even the priests of the Old Covenant couldn't have. Those, that's a Hebrews reference. But that's what Paul is saying. We've already been circumcised. Having been baptized, we share in the circumcision of Christ. Uh, and so the it's not going back doesn't recover anything. Going back to the old uh, world is not uh, is not restoring anything that we don't already have in more fullness in Jesus. The kinds of things that people point to to highlight a more Gnostic element is would be the language of verse of, of chapter two, verse eight. Take captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. The characterization of the threat as a philosophical threat is sometimes seen as an indication that there, there's a Hellenistic dimension or an Hel at least a Hellenistic element to the threat. The end of, verse, uh, end of chapter 2, verse 23, self-made religion, self-abasement, uh, severe treatment of the body, which are no value against fleshly indulgence. So some of the language has been uh, seen that it's not just Judaism, but some uh, Hellenistic-influenced Gnostic trending kind of philosophy. Well, just two quick thoughts. One is careful not to read into the word philosophy, everything we think about when we think about philosophers and the Greeks and all of that. He also mentions human tradition, uh, which is a big issue in the first century with the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, you know, all the elders and the whole oral law tradition. You know, Judaism had its own love of wisdom. And its own pursuit of wisdom, and it had to do with the law and the oral law tradition. So, and then the the asceticism, what to eat, what not to eat, don't taste, don't touch, 
Well, that can refer to all the practices of the Jews, not just given in the law legitimately, but then also misinterpreted, misapplied by the Pharisees, remember, about <clears throat> what you can eat, what you can't eat, how you, how you need to wash your hands in some instances or wash whatever. You know, Jesus deals with that. And so I don't know that you have to read into some kind of Greek Hellenistic Gnostic syncretic kind of philosophy here. I think uh, Judaism in the first century is itself a syncretistic kind of amalgam of uh, all sorts of things. And I think understanding that covers this. I don't think you need to do more than that. Might be worth thinking about some of the specific elements that Paul is challenging that need to be accounted for. So there's the supposed worship of angels. There's the asceticism. There's the the sorts of dualisms that you find within um, the approach um, that we, we are definitely engaging in some sort of shadow reading here. We don't have the writings or the teachings of the people themselves that Paul is responding to, but reading from the text and trying to reconstruct, it would seem that this is some sort of Judaism that has been inflected by um Hellenistic philosophical concepts. Um, we already have elements of that within Palestine at the time, but it would seem to be more pronounced than um, we find elsewhere. That would be my impression, at least. It, it's been a long time since I wrote my little commentary on first uh, on the Epistles of John, which I titled "From Behind the Veil." Uh, but I tried to mount it. I, I glanced over my introduction this morning to try to refresh my memory. And uh, I'm not going to remember the details because it's been been a long time ago. But my argument was partly uh, the, the main argument was that it's a it's a mistake to polarize Gnosticism and uh, and Judaism as alternative threats to the church because uh, I, I think there's pretty strong evidence that Judaism functions as at least a source and perhaps a major source for. Uh, Gnostic tendencies that appear in in kind of full fully full bloom only in the second century. So the, Paul's not writing against some kind of full blown Gnostic system in the way that Irenaeus might be, for example. But Judaism has uh, is one of the sources for that. That's a that's a, a claim that's made by some of the church fathers. Uh, Simon Magus is seen as the source of Gnosticism by by church by the church fathers. Uh, and and he's understood as a Jewish figure who's uh, who's uh, has has a Gnostic uh, is, again is an originating point for Gnosticism or Serenthus. I mean, Serenthus is supposed to be the the great enemy of the Apostle John, but Serenthus is said by some of the Church Fathers to also be Jewish and uh, the source of a Gnosticizing kind of heresy. But then there are also there are also distinctive Christian elements in the more developed Gnosticism that you get in the second century which suggests that it's growing out of a, a Christian-influenced form of Judaism. And I, I think uh, this is the part that I'm not sure I can reconstruct fully. I'd, I refer you to my introduction to, uh, to my commentary on, on the Johanna epistles. But uh, the, as Jeff was saying, the, the temptation is always to, to move back, to move back into the shadows. Um, people love darkness rather than the light is the way John puts it in his gospel. And in that context, the darkness is the darkness, the relative darkness of the old covenant. And they're clinging to the shadows. They're clinging to the darkness 
they're trying to reinstate the veil between God and themselves. Uh, in the incarnation, Israel has come uh, frighteningly near, uh, and uh, there's a there's a kind of comfort in sticking him back behind the veil and screening him off, so he's not he's not in your face in the way he is in Jesus. So, um, and then I, I think that, that there's uh, there's links between that kind of that kind of uh, uh, impulse and that kind of desire. Uh, and the various Gnostic movements that you find, uh, various elements of Gnosticism that you find, again, fully developed in the second century. So I, my inclination is to say that um, Alistair is absolutely right, that their Hellenistic influence is main, mainstream Judaism, the idea that J Judaism is functioning wholly independently of uh, of Hellenism is, that's not the case, even in Palestine, um, much less in the diaspora. But then I think there are similar kind of impulses and motifs that get picked up uh, and maybe particularly in uh, Christian Christian inflected Judaism that clings to the shadows, a Judaizing movement that's trying to uh, return to the old. That seems to me to have a lot of analogies with uh, what later becomes Gnosticism. I mean, one of the things you one of the one of the things I would point to, for example, is the the emphasis on secret knowledge that you have in Gnosticism. You have to have a certain kind of special knowledge because. Uh, there's a there's a hidden there's a hidden god that you're trying to access. Well, that the structurally that looks a lot like uh, the old covenant situation where you do have a hidden god, a god hidden behind the tent curtains, a god hidden in his temple. Uh, certain people have access to him, and he speak, he sends out certain uh, cognoscenti, the uh, the prophets who go out and proclaim his word. But not everyone can enter in. You're not uh, you have to, can't pass behind the veil. Only certain ones can. So the fact that you have a veil between uh, the high God and the the common people. That seems to be a structural similarity between the old covenant situation and what later becomes Gnosticism. And in order to access that high God, you have to have this specialized kind of knowledge that isn't available to everyone. That would be one one kind of parallel that I see between the two. There's a dispute, of course, as there often is in Pauline studies over the authorship of Colossians. Paul is the name that's uh, identified as the author at the beginning. But it's uh, frequently argued that uh, Colossians and and some other uh, letters were uh, that are attributed to Paul are by some someone else writing in Paul's name, and the kinds of arguments in favor of that are stylistic arguments. There are a, a large number, a pretty large number of unique words in Colossians that are not found elsewhere in Paul's letters. Uh, many that aren't found elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, there's the argument that uh, there's a there's theor there are theological divergences that Colossians presents uh, in some, the view is some a, a more advanced and more developed ecclesiology or Christology than are found in the other than are found in the so-called genuine Pauline letters. I assume we have a consensus that Paul wrote Colossians, but uh, what have you found to be that most helpful arguments against those doubters? I guess one thing is that I've always struggled to find Pauline epistles that have a low Christology. And so this idea of like, um, you know, a gradual evolution of Christology within Paul has never really meant a great deal to me. There's also a lot of assumptions like that, that people are taking to these texts that, of course, we start off with a low Christology and then we work up. Of course, we have a low Christology for the original earliest church. And then we have a higher Christology later. And those preconceptions are not necessarily drawn from the text. They're things that end up 
imposing themselves upon the text and those things that don't fit within the text are um, lopped off accordingly. And so I think if you're going to make that case, you really need to demonstrate it from the text itself. Where is this low Christology? Where is this low doctrine of the church? And it seems from the very earliest Pauline letters that are undisputed, you have high Christology, you have a high doctrine of the church. It may not be the most prominent aspect of his letter at the time. Um, it's, it's always important to remember that Paul's writing occasional letters and there are some topics that, for instance, if we didn't have 1 Corinthians, what would we know about the Lord's Supper? Um, doesn't mean that it's not hugely important in Pauline theology. It just means there are other issues that he's tackling in different letters. If, right. if, Paul, if, if Paul didn't write Colossians, then most of chapter four is pure contrivance and all these people, let's say this is written by some disciple of Paul and who's further developed Paul's theology. That's one of the arguments it's made. Well, then he's also making up a lot of things here at the end about various relationships between Tychius and Aristarchus and Onesimus and Epaphras um, and Demas. And all of this is just uh, what? Designed to give ballast to pseudepigrapha. At, when you read Colossians four, it just it it reads like <clears throat> it reads like it was written to a church where Paul at least has relations with people who've been there and are now back uh, and are going back again. Uh, all of that, I think, is I think that's definitive. This is a letter written by Paul. Then, and, the, and the second thing to say is. If Paul didn't write it, then someone's making this up. Someone's acting like Paul. Uh, that pretty much puts the whole thing in question. All of all of his theologizing, all of his arguments, you just have to wonder, well, okay, if this isn't Paul, if it's one of his disciples, um, <clears throat> then he's lying about it, uh, and he's presenting himself as someone who he's not, and he's making arguments that he says or he wants the reader to believe her Pauline, but they're actually not, uh, the whole thing then just kind of falls apart for me. Michael Bird uh, makes the, uh, offers the suggestion, uh, and I, I imagine it's not original with him, I don't, I don't know, but that Paul is, has different kinds of collaboration in different letters. Sometimes he, he, he says, states clearly, states explicitly that he is the one whose hand is writing the letter. Other letters, uh, Colossians, is from Paul and Timothy, our brother, according to one one. So, uh, does that what kind of what kind of relationship is that? Is that just Paul talking about a a co laborer who is with him as he's writing the letter, or is this somehow a collaborative letter in which Timothy has some kind of hand? And then, if if Paul cites somebody else at the beginning of another letter, does that indicate that there's another uh, there's another a collaborator in the writing of the letter? So. Uh, Bird suggests that Paul could have different kinds of relationships to the to the production of the letters. Sometimes he could be dictating them. Sometimes he could be writing them uh, in his own hand. Sometimes he could be uh, writing them along with another author. And Bird argues for a Pauline source, a Pauline origin for Colossians. But it's that looser idea that Paul could be uh, collaborating, and and his direct relationship with the letter itself could be it, it would be varied. It wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be a only one kind of relationship with the letter. Any thoughts on that kind of paradigm? 
Well, James Dunn does the same thing in his discussion of the authorship. And he thinks it's uh, Timothy, who's ordinarily a secretary to Paul and familiar with the pattern of Paul's you know, letter writing. So Paul being content to let Timothy write this. The problem is, as you mentioned, Peter, just a minute ago, there are times when it, it does seem like there is a secretary who, uh, who's transcribing what Paul is saying and writing it down. In this case, however, chapter 4, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, does that mean that he just appended this to what Timothy wrote previously? It's, that that does, doesn't seem right to me. Um, it seems as if this is Paul's way of ending the epistle and letting them know that he is the one who wrote it. And if we read throughout um, the letter itself, you start off with the first person plural, but it very soon becomes first person sing singular in verse 23, for instance, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, etc. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, etc. in the beginning of verse chapter two. All over the place, you have these first person singulars being used. It's Paul referring to himself quite explicitly in certain points, and certainly in the greeting at the end. So attributing this to Timothy, um, there may be an amanuensis or something involved, but saying that this isn't Paul's voice would cause serious problems for our doctrine of scripture, because it claims to be Paul's voice. Yeah, very good points, Jeff and Alistair. One of the questions we could uh, bring up in this uh, general episode is the question of Paul's setting when he's uh, writing the letter and delivering it. He's in prison. We have uh, an indication of that at the beginning of chapter, chapter four, praying at the same time for us all as well, that God may op open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. So that's taken as indication that he's currently in prison when he's writing the letter. So and then the, the question becomes then, uh, is there any way to figure out which of Paul's imprisonments is being referred to? Where is Paul when he's writing this? Part of the question would also be, does it matter to our understanding what's in the letter to know where Paul was and which imprisonment is, is uh, involved? The options, uh, it, options are generally, uh, he's imprisoned in Ephesus, which he refers to, I think in Second Corinthians is the one place that uh, there's no there's no Ephesian imprisonment that's mentioned explicitly in Acts, but Second uh, Corinthians 1 makes a, uh, a, an allusion to something that might have been an imprisonment in Ephesus. We know that Paul was imprisoned after he was in Jerusalem. He's imprisoned by Roman guards in Caesarea for a time. And then eventually, of course, gets to Rome and he's in, he's in house arrest in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. So uh, the question is, uh, which of those imprisonments is uh, involved here? Uh, and is, is there a way to tell, is there a way to, to sort that out? And uh, would it affect the way we read the letter in any case? I can't personally see why it would make a huge difference to how we read the letter. Um, I mean, if it is, let's say, the Roman imprisonment, then some of these visits from like Epaphras and um, Onesimus and so on become much more major um, undertakings. You would, it would be about what, a thousand miles or, or, or something. And so, um, uh, it, you know, there might be some nuances like that, but I can't see that a huge amount would hang on it personally. I mean, that's one of the, one of the arguments for saying that it's a, an, an Ephesian imprisonment because Ephesus and 
Colossians are much closer to each other than uh, Colossians and and uh, and Rome. There do seem to be a number of connections between three key letters. So Philemon, um, Ephesians, and Colossians. We've already noted some of the connections between Ephesians and Colossians, and those happen throughout the letters. But also Philemon, there are common things there. Um, Certain people who are mentioned, the role of Tychicus. um, Epaphras is the primary source of Paul's news about the Colossians, um, it seems, as in verse 7 of this chapter. And then that, the dating, I think, also is one fact that will shape our impression of when and where this was written. Um, Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake at the beginning of the 60s. So um, that would seem to be a likely constraint upon the dating of the letter. So it's presumably before that happened, Um, unless we see earthquake themes within the letter itself, which some have some have seen, but. Yeah, I'm with James and probably Alistair too. I don't know that it makes a huge difference in the interpretation of the letter. I don't think that Caesarea works uh, for a number of reasons, but I don't also know about Ephesus. I don't think 2 Corinthians 1.8 really proves that he was in prison, but I, I would say this, look, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, when he mentions, you know, he's doing this uh, boasting about his suffering as an apostle, he says, far more imprisonments with countless beatings. So, okay, he's in prison in Caesarea. Maybe he was in prison in, in Ephesus. All likely it was, he was, and in Rome. But wow, there, maybe there's four or five different imprisonments he had. <laughs> that we don't really know about because he hasn't talked about it. So this could be one of them. I think the important point is that he's in change, he's suffering, and he's giving us a very subtle interpretation of what that means, not just for him, but for the church at large. Yeah, so an embarrassment of riches as far as choosing an imprisonment, There's just too many to choose from. And we don't know, we don't know enough about them. I was going to, Alistair, I was going to follow up on your comment with just pointing out uh, Colossians 4.9 explicitly mentions Onesimus, who is the slave who is, he's the one who's created the, the situation that uh, Paul addresses in the letter to Philemon. So it's very common to take Colossians and Philemon together as, uh, as, uh, as co-letters, commentators often put those two together in a single volume as related letters, related letters in the provenance, related letters in some ways in their Certainly, in the the persons that are involved, but also uh, in some of the themes that are that are involved. Yeah, I think Jeff, I would I'd want to reiterate what you said. Even if we can't identify the specific imprisonment, and it your your point makes it seem you know virtually impossible to be sure. Uh, the fact of imprisonment is important to the to the whole theology, and that's something we'll want to keep in mind as we go through. How how do we read these passages about Christ, about walking in Christ? Uh, the warning passages. How are all those? How does how does the fact of Paul's imprisonment uh, lend a certain coloring or light to those to those passages? That that'll be important. Most especially, as you said, the passages where he's talking about his sufferings and the fact that he's filling up uh, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in chapter chapter one. That's um, those passages, especially where he's reflecting on his sufferings and the meaning of his sufferings, are reflecting his current situation as a prisoner. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.